With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. As always, we appreciate you spending your precious time with us. We're doing an afternoon show today, and we've got a lot coming up. Uh, we've got Katie Britt announcing her Senate run that she's going to be running for the Senate seat that was recently vacated by Senator Shelby, announcing that he will not seek re-election. Uh, we've got things going on with Mo Brooks and the whole January 6th thing. We've got news about the Montgomery police chief resigning suddenly. And all of that, we even have an interview with Chris Adams-Wall, the voice of the Montgomery Biscuits. But before we get to any to, of that, I wanted to display something kind of a personal matter. So I'd like to for you to just indulge me here a second ago. A lot of you know, because if you saw our episode, I, I want to say it was the one two weeks ago, where we had that big open forum where we were talking about abortion that Laura Clark appeared on that episode, and she's my former co-host, been around for a long time. If you've been a fan of the show for any number of uh, any number of years, then you know, especially if you were a fan back when she was my regular co-host all the time, that she has been instrumental to the show. She's come back and been very helpful. She's on all of my Christmas specials, that kind of thing. Well, it turns out that she just had her baby on Tuesday. I know that you probably noticed she was about to pop when she was on just a couple of weeks ago. And I do have baby pictures, so if you'll indulge me here just a second, this is baby James Clark. So that's, of course, Laura and Matt, who's been on the show a number of times, the proud mother and father, and baby James, who has just arrived in the world. He's a he's an adorable clump of cells, isn't he? I mean, just absolutely adorable. Uh, of course, he is a, a baby, is a human, and, and a life worth protecting, and I don't mean to use him as a, a political football here, because that's really not the purpose of this segment, but... We just wish Matt and Laura the absolute best and pray that little James will grow up in, in the uh, admonition of the Lord and will become a strong soldier in his army. That's, of course, the, the best thing that we could wish for for him is that he'll grow up to live a life that his creator would approve of and that will uh, be a joy, I'm sure, to his mother and father and his entire family. So we're very proud of Laura. She was a trooper. She went through, I believe, 14 hours of labor, which couldn't have been easy on her. But, you know, she pulled through and baby James is just fine, very healthy. And we wish them, of course, all the best. Now, let's actually get into the news of the day. Katie Britt is a newcomer on the political scene for most people. You probably have never heard her name before. I kind of heard her mentioned tangentially, but never necessarily as a huge power player. And uh, I'm not saying that I'm completely unfamiliar with her, but she was not somebody that I was keeping a magnifying glass on, to say the least. But she has announced that she is going to be running for the United States Senate seat that is currently held by Senator Richard Shelby, which means she will be approving Blanchard and Brooks for that Senate seat in the Republican 
primary. So I think that it's always best to go straight to the source and get the news right out of the horse's mouth. So with this announcement, she actually made that announcement via YouTube in kind of the form of a political ad. And so I figured it is a little bit longer clip. It's about three minutes, but it's worth the watch because I want to see her in full context and, and for you to get an idea of who she is. We will try to get her on the show. We'll try to get a longer form interview to kind of dig a little deeper and find out what her actual views on the issues are. But for now, suffice it to just watch this video and we'll do some commentary afterwards. So here is Katie Britt running for the United States Senate from Alabama. Growing up here in the Wiregrass, I learned what's worth fighting for and how to fight for it. My great-grandparents founded the local church. My mom and dad worked hard, owning a hardware store and selling bass boats. This is where I learned the importance of faith, family, and freedom. I love Alabama. I believe in Alabama, our people, and our values. It was an honor to stand with Senator Shelby to bring opportunity to every corner of our state, confirm conservative judges and justices, and help build President Trump's border wall. At the Business Council, I led the charge to save Alabama's small businesses and our jobs, and worked to make sure that rural Alabama wasn't forgotten. I'm proud of my accomplishments in business and our nation's capital but it's my love for the Lord and my family that give true purpose to my life. I met my husband in Tuscaloosa, where he became captain of the football team, inspiring all of us with his will to fight. Today, Wesley and I are raising our two children with Christian conservative values and teaching them to love America and respect the dignity of a hard day's work. But when I look at what's happening in Washington, I don't recognize our country. The leftists are attacking our religious freedoms and advancing a socialist agenda. In Joe Biden's America, people can collect more money staying at home than they can earn on the job. These past few months, I've spent a lot of time praying for America. And now I am stepping up and putting everything on the line and announcing my campaign for the United States Senate. It's time for a new generation of conservative leaders to step up and fight for the next generation and preserve the American dream. The dream that promises that a public school girl from Enterprise can be elected to the United States Senate. I will be a tireless champion for our small businesses, our farmers, and every hardworking Alabamian. I will protect the unborn, our God-given Second Amendment rights, and the integrity of our elections. And I'll fight to secure our border, strengthen our military, and take care of our veterans. Washington is full of career politicians who are all talk and no action. I'm Katie Britt, and I'm asking you to join our team today. I will put Alabama first, deliver results for our state, and never apologize for it. Because we don't just need a senator from Alabama. We need a senator for Alabama. All right, so that is the pitch by Katie Britt. And a couple things before we even get into the politics of what we just saw here. Holy cow, Wesley Britt is a big dude. <laughs> like, when he's standing next to her, she's like half his size. Which, I mean, I guess the guy's a football player in Alabama. That shouldn't be surprising. 
it, it is a very Alabama ad. They had to work in that her husband was a football player, and they had to work in, of course, the obligatory shot of her sitting in a pew in her small local church reading a Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm glad that people in Alabama actually care about that. And that ad is effective because the people of Alabama actually think that that's an important thing to consider when looking at their leaders. Not the only consideration, but it is important. And so I'm not bothered by it. I just find it a little funny that it was very stereotypical. But hey, it's, it's stereotypical because it works, guys. It's just every Alabama politician, regardless of party, they, they all have that obligatory shot of them reading a Bible in their church. But, you know, it is Alabama. It is what it is. There's nothing wrong with that for sure. It's a pretty run-of-the-mill ad in that sense. I mean, they, she says all the right buzzwords. And again, I don't have a problem with it. It talks about the Second Amendment. It talks about, you know, makes mention of Alabama's farmers and industry and business and there's, again, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with anything. I didn't see anything in that video that I disagreed with. I do think one thing that gives me a little bit of pause, just a little bit, is the fact that she name drops Richard Shelby. And I understand Senator Shelby is a very, very popular figure in Alabama. The man has been a senator for longer than I have been alive, and I turned 32 last week. So, yeah, I, I get it. Senator Shelby is, is fairly well-liked, and he's a very well-known name. And considering Katie Britt has virtually no name recognition, that's something that she wants to build upon, that she has some connection or, or some, I guess, credibility through the extension of R Richard Shelby. Uh, I, I didn't actually get a still frame of this, and I probably should have, but I do love in that one picture where she's with Senator Shelby. I'm not saying that she did this. I'm not accusing her of anything. I just think it's funny how her head is like way down in the corner because it got caught at an awkward angle. And so it almost looks like she got photoshopped in. <laughs> I know that I know she didn't Photoshop herself in. I'm not saying she did that. I'm just saying it looks really funny the the way that she caught the angle. But um, you know, that mean that may mean nothing. For whatever reason, Alabama politicians, I guess this is the way that their campaign people tell them to do it, and they know more about winning a, a race than I do, because the horse I pick usually winds up not winning. But one of the horses I actually did pick that wound up winning was Barry Moore, who is now the representative of the 2nd Congressional District. He did the same thing. He paid lip service to Martha Roby, the person he was going to be replacing, which I thought was stupid, because... I don't think that Martha Roby was all that popular. And frankly, I like Senator Shelby a lot more than Martha Roby. And I don't understand why Barry Moore felt like he had to pay lip service to the uh, great job that she's done. And I don't know that Barry actually believes that. But that was, I think that may have been the one or two, one of two points that I was very critical of him in the debate that I covered when I did the live debate coverage. I was like, come on, man. That's, but anyway, so she name dropped Shelby. The reason that gives me a little bit of pause is because she's trying to paint herself as a political outsider, and yet in the same ad, she talks about sitting on the Alabama Business Council and being a close associate of Richard Shelby and having worked in Washington. So she ain't a political outsider. She's never held public office, and that may or may not be a point in her favor. It may or may not play well with the voters. Based on recent trends that we have seen, especially the Tommy Tuberville uh, Senate race against Jeff Sessions, I think that it's pretty clear that the people of Alabama right now have an appetite for political outsiders, but I don't think that she can claim the mantle of just being a political outsider considering she's worked in politics for a while now. She's never held an office where she was elected, 
But that's not the same thing as being a political outsider. There are plenty of people that are unelected that are very influential in policymaking, in politics in general. A great example of this is somebody that we've been hearing about recently. One of the top advisors for the Biden administration is Susan Rice. Now, to my knowledge, I could be wrong. I don't think Susan Rice has ever held an elected office. Valerie Jarrett, who was the primary advisor for the Obama administration, never held a public office that I'm aware of. And yet they're very influential in the decisions that the Obama administration made, which had sweeping changes across the entire nation. So just because you have never held an office does not make you a political outsider, Katie Britt. However, and I know I've been a little bit harsh on her, I actually really like her. I think that she seems like a good candidate. I don't know that I will wind up voting for her, but at least based on the very limited amount that I've seen, and this is why I want to interview her, I don't really see anything objectionable. She seems like a good candidate based on the three minutes worth of, of you know, introduction that I have there and some of the things that I've read about her online. So she is saying all the right things. I think that that is fair to point out. Uh, but name dropping Shelby, I'm afraid that when she says she's going to take care of business owners and farmers and, and all the other stuff, I'm afraid that when she says take care, she means take care of the way that Richard Shelby would. Now, for those of you that are conservative, and you probably are if you're watching my channel, you probably have some hesitation about Richard Shelby that even though he, generally speaking, has a pretty darn good voting record, he tends to vote with the swamp a lot. And the man never saw some pork barrel spending he didn't like. I mean, every time something came up, he's got to get a little bit from Alabama to be able to get his vote for it. And he's fantastic at that. Some people, even outside of Alabama, refer to him as the king of pork. And I don't like that. I don't like the fact that our politicians are trying to bring money from the federal government back into Alabama. And the reason that I say that is normally what you have when that happens is you'll have a, you know, however million, millions or billions of dollars in a spending measure in Washington. And the way that that usually winds up breaking down is something like this. Hey, uh, Senator Shelby, we know that you don't really support this bill and there's a whole lot of junk in there that you don't like, but it would be really nice if you just voted for this. And, and if so, you know, we'll consider throwing in a, oh, I don't know, a $1.5 million bridge somewhere in your state. And then Richard Shelby comes back to his constituents and talks about all the great things he's done for Alabama. And he can mention something like that in a campaign ad or when he's doing some kind of stump speech. And that's usually the way the game is played. And you multiply that not just by Richard Shelby, but by 20, 25 other senators. You know, if half the Senate gets on board with something like that, well, that can very easily swing the direction of a vote. And they're not really voting for it because they think the bill's a good idea. They're voting for it because they want something to go back and show their work and to show that they're looking out for the people of their state. That's how you get $23 trillion in debt. I mean, that's not the only thing, but it's certainly a, a big contributing factor. And if Katie Britt's going to play that game, it's going to be a lot harder for her to get my vote. I know that virtually every elected representative does that, but the ones that I like the most are the ones that really don't and don't care about stuff like that. And so if that is who she's going to emulate in that sense, she's going to try to be the, the king of pork the way that Richard Shelby is, that's a point against her, not a point for her. And then she, of course, takes a jab at career politicians, which, hey, you play to your strengths. If you can try to tell the voters, even if I don't think it's actually 100% accurate considering what she's done in the past and worked in politics, if you can convince them that you're the outsider and that's what they want, then you do it. So you take a jab at career politicians. 
and considering her biggest opponent right now is Mo Brooks, it was probably sort of a veiled jab at him. And I don't know that I would even consider Mo Brooks a, a career politician. Um, I, I mean, he's been in politics for a while now, but I guess you could you could call him that. But he's done a lot of other things too. And ultimately, she seems like a strong candidate. But the thing that gives me the most pause about her is that she has no voting record. Mo Brooks does. Lots of other people do. And that's one of the reasons I don't really like the idea of sending somebody to Washington if they have not served on the smaller stage somewhere in the state. To be honest, looking at that campaign ad, seeing that she has no experience, if this were an ad running for the House of Representatives in the state of Alabama and I were in her district somewhere in Enterprise, I might consider voting for her. And in fact, I think she has a pretty good shot at getting my vote. And so I'm not trying to say that she's a terrible candidate. I just think that moving from holding no political office all the way up to the United States Senate, where we don't have a voting record to check what your votes would look like, because essentially we're hiring somebody to represent us, to vote for us in the United States Senate, considering I don't know what that looks like for her, I'm a lot more hesitant to do that, especially with a Senate seat. I'm a little bit more open to it if it's somebody that's un untrained and not even untrained, but that I can't have a voting record to see how they vote on certain issues because it's a lot different. A lot of people will talk the right talk and then they get to Washington and then they don't do what they said they were going to do. Case in point, repealing Obamacare. Republicans campaigned on that for six years. And then when it finally came time to where they had the majority, they had a president that would have signed the repeal, all of that, they just went, eh. So no, I, I don't like the idea of sending somebody that doesn't have a voting record that I can check against all of the issues up to a seat as powerful as the U.S. Senate. Now, you know, on some level, some everyone has to start somewhere. So you do have to trust, and based on just the rhetoric instead of a voting record, you have to get them in office some kind of way, but the Senate is not a good step for that. If you're running for a district office, maybe even the House of Representatives, I'd be a little more open to it in, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Maybe then, but as a Senate seat, I really don't like the idea of sending somebody up there. If she wants to run for something on Goat Hill, I think that that would be a good idea. But Brooks not only has a voting record, but it's absurdly good. It's very conservative. You look at any of the people that check that, Conservative Review, Heritage, Freedom Works, the NRA, uh, National Right to Life, all of the people that track those things, they give him stellar reviews in every single category. The, the guy's not a rhino. He's not a squish. He stands up for what he believes in, and he has a fantastic voting record. And even Shelby has a not, not as good as Mo Brooks, but a pretty darn good voting record, according to those organizations as well. But it may not matter because we have the latest poll out from Club for Growth, and this is showing the latest on this particular election. So these are the three people that have announced thus far. You can see there Mo Brooks, Linda Branch, Blanchard and Katie Britt. And it ain't even close. Even though Katie Britt surprisingly has a little bit more than Linda Blanchard, even though Blanchard announced before her, which I find a little odd, but you know, whatever. Good for her, I guess. Even Katie Britt is only at 25% name recognition of the people that they surveyed. Mo Brooks is at 83. And of that percentage, they looked at that the, the people that knew who they were and looked at the favorable or unfavorable rating. The favorable rating there 
is at 57, while the unfavorable is at 11 for Mo Brooks. And you can see that the name ID is so low for the other two candidates that they have favorable, but it really doesn't matter. And oddly enough, Blanchard has an 8% favorable, whereas Katie Britt has a 6 and 6 split, which is odd. I find it weird that 50% of the people that know her don't like her, which I, I don't know why. Maybe they have a good reason for that, but that seems odd to me. But the reason that right now Mo Brooks would have a commanding lead is a couple reasons. First of all, name ID is absolutely everything in the state. With a handful of extremely rare exceptions, for example, sometimes when Roy Moore runs for something, because he has very high name recognition, but also high unfavorables based on certain things, usually the guy with more name ID wins. One of the reasons that Tommy Tuberville was able to defeat Jeff Sessions, who has way more experience and a lot of name ID in the state, is because his starting point already had him with a very high name, uh, name recognition ID. I would be willing to guess, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I would be willing to guess that there were several people in the state that knew who Tommy Tuberville was that did not know who Jeff Sessions was. <laughs> now, again, their, their name recognition was pretty close to similar, but I'm guessing there are at least some people that pay enough attention to football and pay no attention to politics that they were looking at that and going, yeah, I, I know who Tommy Tuberville is. I don't know who this Jeff Sessions guy is. But granted, those people are probably not the ones that were going to be voting, so it I doubt it mattered. But to give you a little context on why that poll is so important, because let, let's bring it up one more time. The reason that that's so important is you see that that favorability rating is at 57 while his unfavorable is at 11. A lot of people have been skeptical of whether or not Mo Brooks can win this thing because of his last failed attempt to take over the seat that eventually wound up being occupied by Doug Jones. He lost to Luther Strange and lost to Roy Moore in the in the primary, um, and then wound up, you know, not going anywhere. And then Doug Jones, of course, we we all know what happened after that. But it's very different now because he does not have Mitch McConnell spending millions of dollars to try to railroad him off to the side, and that made a big difference. In fact, I believe it made the difference. And now that his name recognition is significantly higher than it was back then. That's going to be a big point in his favor, especially considering the people he is currently running against have so little. And even more important in all of that, if you look back in 2017 when that was going on, Brooks had a 45% unfavorable rate to a 39% favorable rating. So most of the people that knew who he was had an unfavorable rating for of, of him. And I really do think it's because Mitch McConnell dropped millions upon millions of dollars in media trying to slam the guy, which made no sense to me whatsoever. But anyway, Mitch McConnell tried to get involved in Alabama politics and every single time he's tried to do it, it's in a disaster as far as I know. But anyway, so he did that and Mo Brooks was known, but he had a very high unfavorability rating. That's very different now. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the way that they've seen and the work that he's done in the House as a member of the Liberty Caucus, they've seen that Mo Brooks actually was nothing like Mitch McConnell was portraying him, and he's actually extremely conservative and, and a very good representative of Alabama's values. And because of that, his unfavorability rating has dropped to 11 when it was 45, where he had more people that had an unfavorable view of him than favorable. This puts Mo Brooks at a massive advantage. Now, granted, the closer we get to the election day, 
the, the day that we're actually voting, yes, his opponents are going to have better name recognition then than they do now because they're going to be spending more money on ads. People are going to start paying attention more. But that's still a very, very tall hill to climb for Britt and Blanchard. And Mo Brooks has a commanding lead. Right now, based on the polling, and, and we got a long way to go before Election Day. I understand that, before the primaries happen. Right now, I have a very hard time believing that they can climb that hill. If I were an investor, even if I, even if I thought Katie Britt was fantastic and she was my preferred candidate or Blanchard, either one, you'd have a hard time convincing me to give money to them because she's got such a, a tall hill to climb. But maybe, maybe, we will see. I do think that there are people in the state of Alabama that may very well give Mo Brooks a run for his money. Now that the scandals come out about John Merrill, he is no longer one of them. But there are a couple of names that I could see you know, really giving Mo Brooks a run for his money. But right now, I do not think that Blanchard and Britt are among those names. Ultimately, I, I just don't see Britt's campaign taking off. But again, we're, we're very early. I'm making a very early prediction, and we will see where she goes. But, you know, even if that happens, even if that is true, it, it may be a smart thing for her to run for the House of Representatives here in Alabama and build her resume a little bit. She knows some people. She's worked with with people in the state already as a member of the business council. So, yeah, I could totally see that happening. And who knows? I might even support her. If, if Mo Brooks wasn't running in this race, she might be the horse that I was backing right now. I don't know. But right now, Mo Brooks just has the he has the edge. And he's not only has the edge, I think he's the better candidate anyway. Even, you know, I, I think that the numbers point in his favor, but even if they didn't, he would still be the person that I was backing, as I did last time that he was running for the Senate. But speaking of Representative Brooks, he is actually being sued right now by Eric Swalwell, the representative from the state of California, based on his speech on January 6th. Now, frankly, I really hope this thing goes to trial. I really, really do. Because I don't think there's a judge in the country, even some of the most uber leftist judge, I'm sure that there's at least a few that would just because they don't like Mo Brooks, but the vast majority even of liberal judges that don't like Mo Brooks would have to look at that and go, yeah, that was an incitement. There's no way that you could take what Mo Brooks said in that speech, which by any measure was a run-of-the-mill speech. Yes, he does talk about fighting, but it's very clear he's talking about politically, not you didn't tell people to go break into the Capitol. Anybody that is saying that is insane. But anyway, he is suing him right now. And I really hope that goes to trial because when it comes up in a court of law, that will be even more proof and more vindication that what Mo Brooks did was not wrong and it was not incitement because he didn't tell them to do that. He, in fact, in that same speech, he actually mentions that it has to be done peacefully. But anyway, remember that... One of the reasons I find this so hilarious is that Mo Brooks was actually there on the day that a crazed Bernie Sanders campaign worker tried to murder a third of Congress. This was a thing that happened, and Mo Brooks was present and actually kind of on the front line, so to speak, of it when that happened because he was there when Representative and Majority Whip Steve Scalise got shot, and he actually took off his own belt and wrapped it around his leg to, to tourniquet it. And so it amazes me that somebody like Eric Swalwell, who, as I, if I recall correctly, wasn't even in the building the day that that happened when a bunch of morons broke into the Capitol on January 6th, is now suing Mo Brooks for 
incitement when an actual Bernie Sanders campaign supporter tried to murder people. And yes, the Capitol riot was idiotic. It was stupid. I condemned it the day that it happened. And I condemn it, have, have consistently condemned it up until this time. Nothing that could have been done, even if you legitimately believe the election was stolen, justified breaking, on, breaking into the Capitol grounds and treating it the way that they did. That is absolutely true. However, let us not pretend that it is the equivalent of trying to murder a third of Congress. And yet Mo Brooks, who was actually a victim of that and was present there, is being sued by a guy that is trying to make it, trying to say that that is something that is worthy of him being removed from office. This is ridiculous, the times that we're living in. And also, of all the people in Congress to do this, Swalwell is the last person that needs to be throwing stones since he lives in a glass house. I mean, this is the guy that sits on the Intelligence Committee for the House of Representatives and was sleeping with a Chinese spy. We find out later, and by the way, still retains his seat there. There are a lot of conservatives that are calling for him to be thrown out of his position or be fired or be charged. I haven't seen the evidence that would lead that to a criminal investigation. I mean, it could. We could see the evidence of that. I don't think that he knew that it was a Chinese spy, but at the very least, the man should not sit on the intelligence committee. Like, even if they keep him as a representative in California, which I think Californians get the representatives they deserve based on that. But even if they're going to allow him to remain a representative of the state of California, the man shouldn't be on the intelligence committee because he's a security risk. But anyway, there we stand. And an interesting event unfolded this week when it came to that with him being sued for that. So if you'll actually look at this clip, this is Mo Brooks home where a private investigator trying to serve him papers pertaining to this lawsuit actually chases his wife into their house, trespassing, to hand her the papers. All right, so there's Brooks' wife right there, Mrs. Brooks, pulling into her garage. And watch the top of the screen there. You're going to see a car just speed into their drive. Yeah, there he goes. And so runs out. Runs into the garage, and a few seconds later comes out. Wait for it. All right, so you see that he doesn't have the papers anymore. Now, Mrs. Brooks doesn't have the papers either, so I assume that they either got left inside or something. But anyway, so that's the exchange. Now... Here's the thing. I have actually served papers in the past. I've done this. This, is, this was part of my job. I was a private investigator for a little bit. And so I understand that it's very difficult to do. And you do have to kind of be zealous. And you do have to be a little bit in, in your face to serve some people. I, I, I understand that. I have done that job before. But you don't get to go inside somebody's house to do that. And furthermore... You don't go after somebody's spouse if you can help it. Because this guy probably didn't even know that it was Mo Brooks' wife. He's probably hanging out outside his address, his, his legal residency, which, by the way, I have done before myself as well, and waited for a car to come home. And then as soon as he saw a car drive into the driveway, he, as we saw, sped in and tried to catch Brooks. And he probably thought it was Mo Brooks in that car. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. But that's probably what was going on there. He just, the first car that he saw pulling in, that's the one he chased down to try to serve. 
but you don't go inside a person's home even if the garage door is open. That's trespassing. And by the way, I couldn't find a law in civil procedure, and, and maybe I'm just missing it and some of my lawyer friends can correct me on this if I'm wrong. I don't think you can actually serve a person's spouse. You can serve the person, but I don't think that you can serve their spouse. And there have been times where I, as a private investigator, when I couldn't find the person and I did find their spouse, and I, I've done this, I said, well, would you take these papers and make sure that they get to him? And they said, sure. And I had them sign off on it, that say a sworn affidavit saying that they would. And I don't think that's what happened here because as you see, the private investigator walks out without papers and it seems like Mrs. Brooks is very perturbed with him. By the way, I, I know Mo Brooks' wife. She's a, a lovely lady. I actually talked to her a lot longer than I talked to Mo uh, at the last event we were at. You, you remember when I did an interview with him. Um, so she's usually very nice, very cordial, very sweet, mild-mannered, not somebody that just gets up in, in somebody's face. But try to put yourself in that mindset. Let's say that you are the wife of a representative of the house, and then you pull into your garage, and moments later, you hear a car speed into your driveway, and a man jumps out, you're by yourself, and chases you into your house. You'd be pretty dang rattled, and you would be right to do so. Now, I don't know if this guy has been trying to get to Mo for weeks and Mo's been like ducking him. I, I find that hard to imagine because if I were Mo Brooks, I would want this thing to go to trial, frankly. But anyway, I'm saying put yourself in that mindset. I, I understand that the guy is tr just trying to do his job. And, and frankly, he probably doesn't even know who Mo Brooks is. When I was a private investigator, I knew the person's name. And I knew their address and I would look up like where they work and that kind of thing. But it was very rare that I knew what was going on. I never knew the reason that they were being sued or the reason that they were being served papers. I never knew that. And I did that intentionally because I didn't want to answer any questions when I served them. So he probably doesn't even know this is a representative. But if you are a representative's wife and you're at your house and some random dude that you don't know just starts chasing you into your house after speeding into your driveway, that would freak you out. Frankly, especially considering how pro-Second Amendment Mo Brooks is, I'm surprised the man didn't get shot. And if he's trespassing, that would have been legally acceptable to do. So what this guy just did was incredibly dangerous. But anyway, so Mo Brooks actually made a point about that. And what's worse is Eric Swalwell's lawyer, the person that ordered the private investigator to be served, lied about it and said that he did not trespass on his property, but there's the video right there. And so... No surprise, the guy that was sleeping with Chinese spies, his attorney is like, uh, yeah, that, that didn't happen, just lying about it, even though Mo Brooks clearly had the footage that proves that, yes, he did. I think that that comes as a surprise to no one, considering what else Eric Swalwell has been lying about. Some local city news here today, which I do find bizarre, and I try not to do a ton of speculation on this show because I, I don't want to waste your time. But I'm going to do a little bit of speculation, frankly, because there's just not a lot of information to go on on this one. The chief of the Montgomery Police Department, Chief Ernest Finley, has announced that he is resigning and that that happened on Tuesday very suddenly, effective immediately. He didn't even do the press conference himself. He actually had Mayor Reed do that, that press conference for him. But there was no explanation given, and that seems a little bizarre. So we're going to go ahead and look at this is from our friends over at WSFA. You can see they're reporting on it. And this one is a strange one. You can see there, uh, Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed made the announcement about Ernest Finley's resignation Tuesday. 
through a written statement saying he felt, quote, it is in the best interest of the men and women of the Montgomery Police Department, as well as the residents of Montgomery, to make a change in leadership. So that's where we stand right now. And there's been a lot of speculation on this. I've heard several rumors myself. I don't know if I believe any of them, but I've heard a couple of theories. First of all, a lot of people are saying that it was a falling out with Mayor Reed. I guess that's possible. I think that he and Mayor Reed do have very different outlooks and Mayor Reed tends to be very much in line with what we see in the modern Democrat party. He tries to toe the DNC national line. Uh, but he's never come across as hostile towards police, at least publicly, based on what I've seen. He's certainly no mayor of Portland, Oregon, or anything like that. Um, so it's possible, especially considering I think that privately that is a little bit more how Mayor Reed is, but publicly he's not done that. So I, I wouldn't rule out a falling out with Mayor Reed and, and the two of them just having a difference of opinion on how the police department should be run but I don't see a lot of evidence to back up that theory. Some people think it had to do with the climbing homicide and crime rate. And that's true, but that's also true across the country. The nation as a whole has seen a very high homicide and crime rate over the past year. And we'll actually look at some statistics about that in a second because of something else people are saying. But I think it suffices to say that even though that is climbing, because it's climbing everywhere, I don't think that people are blaming Mayor Finley for it. And I don't think Mayor Finley blames himself for it because it's going up all over the place. And so I don't know that that is a viable theory either, especially considering that it's happening nationwide. If it were happening just here locally, or maybe it were happening nationally, but it was especially bad in Montgomery, maybe, but... I don't really buy into that theory because I don't see a lot of evidence for that. Another one is that maybe it's a scandal we don't know about yet. Now, this one is perfectly reasonable. However, it is an argument from ignorance. It's saying that there is something that we have not seen underneath the bus, and maybe the noose was tightening around Mayor Finley, and we're going to find out within the coming weeks or months that there was a whole lot of corruption going on there and Finley was at the core of it, and he saw the writing on the wall and decided he was going to go ahead and peace out before stuff hit the fan. Maybe, but if that is the case, I can't possibly speculate on what that may be because I don't have any information to do it because, I mean, by definition, it's saying a scandal we don't know about yet, so that would mean we don't know about it. That could be the case, and frankly, if that turned out to be the answer, it would not surprise me, but at this point, it is merely conjecture. I think, and I don't know, but I think more than likely, it's a personnel issue. And this isn't like a rock-solid case for this, but there's a couple of reasons why I believe this. I have heard from some of my friends in the police department that there's some misgivings between the people of the Montgomery Police Department and Chief Finley. I don't think that it was a great work environment for a lot of them. Now, some of that obviously would not be Chief Finley's fault. It's, it's a difficult city to be a policeman in for a number of reasons uh, with the crime rate and everything. I, I understand that that would be a difficult thing to have to deal with regardless of who was the chief officer and, and the head over the MPD. However, this is another thing that I think kind of hints at it, and we're going to go back and look at that exact same graphic that we saw just a second ago that was provided from WSFA, and this is a written statement from Chief Finley himself. 
Notice that highlighted area. It is in the best interest of the men and women of the Montgomery Police Department. Now, the reason I think that that is telling is because he does say it's also in the best interest of the residents of Montgomery. But usually if you're a politician or somebody that works in a government capacity, you lead with that. You say, look, it's in the best interest of the community or it's in the best interest, uh, interest of the residents or whatever. You start with that and then maybe you follow it up with, and it was re really just better for my department if I departed. Normally, that's what happens. Here, we're seeing the reverse of that. That instead of saying it's really in the best interest of the people of Montgomery or the city of Montgomery, and also for the department itself, if I just go ahead and resign and we have a change in leadership. But he started with the men and women of the MPD. I think that is an indication that there is some kind of turbulence between him and the morale and the way that the Montgomery Police Department saw him, and that's probably what did it, in my opinion. We, we could find out that I was completely wrong here in a couple days, but I think that that's, it. that's the best explanation I can come up with with the limited information I have right now. So Chief Cunningham in the same article actually mentioned the crime and talked about it, and even though it's not technically connected to uh, Chief Finley resigning, I do think that Sheriff Cunningham has some good insights that are worth Noting, So we'll go ahead and look at those as well, again, from WSFA News. Right now in our state, we are looking at gun violence going up, but at the same time, we're trying to get more or trying to put more guns on the street. Now, personally, I'm not aware of anybody trying to put more guns on the street. Maybe what Sheriff Cunningham is referring to is that there has been a substantial increase in the past year in gun ownership, because a lot of people were buying guns. They were nervous about Joe Biden being put into office, and especially the way that the people around him were talking about. They got scared of that and were wondering if that was going to result in them not being able to buy guns or certain guns. And because of that, they bought up a whole bunch of them and the pandemic and a lot of other factors, too. That could be what he's referencing, but I don't want to put words in Sheriff Cunningham's mouth. So for now, we'll move on. Continuing. Not only do we need to think about that, we can't just be thinking about programs. We got to start thinking about consequences, and those consequences are tough sometimes. If you commit a gun-related crime, I think we need to make sure that you can get the highest bond and that your conviction, we follow it through. We want to make sure that you get the stiffest penalty that they can get, and the conviction needs to be the same. Right now, we are seeing people get in and out of jail on bonds that are just, I mean, it makes you cry to know that somebody that just took a life and they are going to jail and they're getting the same bond as a person would get for shoplifting in some cases, Cunningham went on to say. Now, I don't know what he meant by the first part of that about putting wanting to put more guns on the street, like I said, but that last part, I couldn't agree with more. The fact that he is saying we, we got to quit thinking about government programs and think about actually punishing criminals that break the law. Because right now, we are not giving punishments that are proportional to the crime. Now, it's wrong to steal, but it's not the same as taking somebody's life. And what Sheriff Cunningham is talking about is he's seeing people that are taken to jail and convicted and given bonds equal to a person that is guilty of shoplifting for killing a person. That's a problem, guys. Because the purpose of incarceration, despite what people will tell you, it's not about rehabilitation. It's not about punishing people and throwing them away forever. 
It's about protecting the innocent. That is the purpose of incarceration. Always has been, always will be. If we can rehabilitate them, good. I'm in favor of that, but that's not the goal. The goal is to keep people that would hurt the innocent off of the streets and make them incapable of hurting innocent people again. And that's exactly what Chief Cunningham, or sorry, Sheriff Cunningham is discussing here. He's saying that the problem with what we're having and the reason that we're seeing an increase in violent crime, I'm sure it's not the only thing, but part of it is we're not actually punishing people proportionally to what they're doing. And, and that could be for a number of different reasons. One of them is because we're trying to do bond reform and, and we're trying to downscale and downplay the amount of bond. And he's saying we need to be making sure those people don't get back on the streets. We need to set bond high and give them the highest possible bond. And if they're guilty, incarcerate them. We need to actually punish criminals. And Sheriff Finley, or sorry, I keep mixing up the name. Sheriff Cunningham is 100% right on that. And furthermore, there has been an anti-police sentiment lately that has, I think, been a fairly compelling contributing factor to the rise in crime rate. And I do have statistics to back this up. Let's go ahead and take a look at this really quickly. First of all, you have this from Statista, and this is the violent crime rate per 100,000. So this is adjusted for population. And you see there, this chart starts all the way back in 90s, and the crime rate really kind of hit its zenith in America in 1992. And ever since, it's been on a downward trend. Some years, you know, you'll see a little pop up, but ultimately, you see a downward trend in all of these years. Now, what I want you to note is interesting is the first time we had a two-year consecutive upward swing that I can that I can see is in 2015. So from 2015 to 2016 and 2017, it went up, started going down a little bit from 2017 to 2018, and then on to 2019, which remained, it went down a little, but it was pretty much static. Why the upswing, especially considering we've been on a downward trend since the early 90s, why the upswing in 2015? What happened in 2015? Ferguson, Missouri. And by the way, if you're saying, well, yeah, that happened back in 2015, but we saw a similar thing happen with George Floyd where everybody started mobilizing and there was all this anti-police sentiment and we didn't see that upswing in 2020, right? Yeah, actually, no. If you look at this article from Time Magazine, this year many Americans have experienced significantly higher levels of violence both wrought on and within their communities. Gun violence and gun crime has in particular risen drastically with over 19,000 people killed in shootings and firearm-related incidents in 2020. By the way, that is excluding suicides. That's talking specifically about homicides. That's the highest death toll in over 20 years, according to data from the Gun Violence Archive. And so you can see that just based surely on the statistics, that in the years where we have these massive events where there's a, a giant groundswell of anti-police sentiment, in one case, you had the, the case in 2015, with Michael Flynn, where the police were 100% justified and did exactly what they were supposed to do because the guy reached for the police officer's gun. George Floyd, very clear that in that case, very different than the Michael Brown thing, George Floyd, where the police officer, I mean, it, it was 
perfectly reasonable to say that the police officer did not handle that correctly in any shape or form. Even though I don't think that it was quite as bad as some people on the left tried to make it, but they always try to make everything worse than it actually is. But when it comes to George Floyd, uh, that was another thing that caused it. And so in both of those years, from 2014 to 2015, seeing a really big increase in violent crime. And then the same thing happens when it started trending downward in 2017, spikes right back up higher than it's been in 20 years in 2020. I do not think these things are coincidences. When you start telling people that the police are hunting them and oppressing them, and that that kind of level of, that has two effects. First of all, that lack of respect for police officers and lack of respect for authority motivates people to engage in violent crimes. But the second part of that is also that I believe that police officers feel more handcuffed. And I don't mean that as a pun, but I really do think that they feel like they got their hands tied. And if they do anything to a criminal or actually do their job and arrest criminals or punish criminals for what they've been, what they've been doing and process them according to the law, of course, they're under fire for doing that, just for doing their jobs. And you probably also have quite a bit of good police officers leave, especially leadership, older police officers that have a lot of experience with this, that are of the age they could retire, that might have been hanging on for various reasons. They get to that point, they're seeing all this anti-police sentiment go up and they're like, maybe I should just retire. This isn't worth it anymore. Or people that are really good at this pulling out of that profession. Or in 2020, amazingly enough, you defund police in a lot of the major cities in the country. Turns out, you get worse policing. So th there's a number of factors that go to it, but it all goes back to, and you can see how the data actually follows this trend, that when you drum up all this anti-police sentiment, and you start talking about, people, you're not really criminals, you're just victims of your circumstances, then people act upon that. And we're seeing violent crimes, and unfortunately, innocent people are getting hurt because people are using this to push their political ideology. And some people will look at these and look at these statistics and go, well, see, the reason that we saw this massive uptick in gun crime in 2020 was because of gun sales. Unfortunately for them, that's a load of crap. If you don't believe me, look at this statistic. This is the number of NICS background checks, which means people that go to a federal firearms dealer and purchase guns. As you can see, we've been on an upward trend of gun ownership and guns being bought by year for a very, very long time. Barack Obama was a big part of the reason that we saw an increase of gun sales. The election of Joe Biden should surprise nobody that when people thought that that might happen, there was an increase of gun sales there. The problem is it's been on an upward trajectory for a really long time, and yet we were on a downward trajectory for crime up until last year. The, the one time we've actually seen correlation between these two statistics was in 2019 and 2020, which means that there is no correlation between the two overall. If you're looking at multiple years, you're saying, oh, we've been having a drastic increase in gun ownership for a really, really long time now. It's just this one past year, they happened to correlate. Well, what about the other 20 years where they didn't correlate? where we had an uptick in gun ownership, but not an uptick in gun crime or gun homicides. Well, that would lead you to believe that gun ownership is not the cause of that. In fact, you could actually argue the opposite, that the more guns we have out there by law-abiding citizens, the less likely you want to have criminals attacking people because they're afraid they might get shot. 
I don't think there's really any data to back that up, but I'm just saying that you could make that argument way easier than you could the argument that the rise in gun ownership and guns out there in circulation are the reason that we're seeing an increase in gun crime. The data actually says the exact opposite for every year in the past 20 years, except for 2020. That's the one exception, which would lead us to believe that there is no real correlation. So another problem with that theory is where the guns are being sold. Because the massive uptick in gun homicides has happened mostly, not entirely, but mostly in cities. Cities tend to have a lower rate of people owning firearms, and it's harder to get them within the cities. They have stricter regulations. A lot of the cities where that gun crime has been increasing the most are cities like Chicago, Illinois, where it's hardest to get a firearm. And so not only do they have the problem of, well, it didn't work that way for the past 20 years, they also have the problem of having to explain why is it the cities where it's the hardest to get a gun is the place where we're seeing the most gun, the most increase in gun crime. It's not about the gun. It's about the people and how they're reacting to this anti-police sentiment. And another thing, and this is what Sheriff Cunningham was talking about, the lack of prison space is part of it. It's leaving our citizens vulnerable because when we do convict these people, we have nowhere to put them. And so we give them smaller sentences so they take up less space for less time. We're not doing our job of keeping these people in prison when they commit violent crimes and take somebody's life to protect society from them. And when criminals get out, they normally commit more crimes. Not all the time. We do have some that are reformed and stop that. But usually, especially with violent criminals, when they get let out again, they commit more crimes and more violence. And that's part of the reason that the prison space issue was such a big deal in the state of Alabama. By the way, little news on that, Speaker McCutcheon actually did meet with Governor Ivey to talk specifically about the issue of prisons and how to increase our prison space because in, in Alabama, we've got them stacked in there like corkwood and they're, they're running out of space very quickly. McCutcheon did say that that was a productive meeting. Take that for what you will. Just because he said it doesn't mean it's the truth. But at least Speaker McCutcheon feels as though they're making progress on that. So let's hope that our elected officials can do that. That's actually one of the few legitimate functions of government. And so hopefully they are able to do that. Um, but as far as Chief Finley goes, I wish him the best. But frankly, whether he was the leader of the MPD or not, I am skeptical and not super optimistic about the future of the MPD. It's going to take somebody that is ready to go in there like a bull in, in a china shop and ready to engage in some massive reform before it makes any change in our violent crime rate and, and a number of other ways that you could measure the effectiveness of the Montgomery Police Department. So all of that to say, I probably just wasted your time there because we went through all of that and we went through all those statistics and, and what we can do to fix it. But the truth is we don't need any of that because luckily representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has solved crime. All of it. We don't have to worry about it ever again because she has this solution, which she came up with in, in the brilliant mind that us little people can't even understand of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is her solution to crime. And our complete gutting of support in our mental health system, both in the city and across the country, is absolutely 
correlated with both homelessness and incidents of violent crime. When you actually open the door to a jail and look at who's inside, an enormous amount of people are dealing with untreated mental health issues. And it is not acceptable for us to use jails as garbage, garbage, garbage uh, uh, bins for human beings. We need to treat people and feed them as humans. And so it is not a place for us to throw people for whom we don't want to invest in the actual holistic issues of Wait their lives. It. If we want to reduce violent crime, Here it is. if we want to reduce the number of people in our jails, the answer is to stop building more of them. The answer <laughs> is to make sure that we actually build more hospitals, we pay organizers, we get people mental health care and overall health care, employment, etc. It's to support communities, not throw them away. <laughs> so that's AOC's answer. If, if we just want to stop crime, if we want to have less prisoners, let's just stop building jails, guys. Well, yeah, that, that would work. AOC is not wrong on that because if we stopped arresting people, if we didn't have space to put people in prisons, we would have less prisoners. Th that is correct. That's the approach that we've been going with for the past decade. We've been building less prisons, and as a result, an awful lot of people that should be in prison that are violent criminals are out on the streets. That's what's actually been happening. But I, I just looked at that. I was like, man, why didn't I think of that? You know, you, you don't want prisons. You, you don't want prisoners. You just stop building prisons and then everybody's just walking around on the street, you know, murdering people or whatever. Ah, it doesn't matter. At least they're not in prison because that would be bad. It'd be really bad to have lots of prisoners in this country. It's, it's much preferable to just have them out on the streets where they can, you know, kill people and that's fine. But you know what else would stop people from being in prison? Just stop making things illegal. Just not arrest people. That, that would take the incarceration rate down to zero. You know, you see somebody murder a family of five, you just, hey, whatever, you do you. I mean, that's that's a personal choice and we your body, your choice. We would never want to impugn your ability to do that. I guess that's the Democrat logic now is that if we just stop arresting people and let violent criminals roam the streets, then it'd be fine. But by her logic, because you remembered that right after that, she said, we need to build less prisons and build more hospitals. Well, if I'm understanding AOC's logic correctly, wouldn't building more hospitals mean that we have more sick people? I mean, if we just stopped building house uh, hospitals, there would be no sick people in hospitals. I mean, yay, that would, that would fix everything. I mean, people sure would be dying on the streets or whatever. This is the problem with liberal thinking in a nutshell. Ultimately, they think that their good intentions can wish away evil. The thing is, the child rapist or the axe murderer he doesn't care that you built less prisons. He doesn't care that you have lots of government programs to help him out. He doesn't care that you're going to be nice to him and put him in a padded cell as opposed to a jail cell, which they won't even do that anymore, and I'll get to that in a second. He's going to do what he's going to do. Evil is a reality, and Democrats don't want to believe that. Because they believe in social engineering, and they believe that when a criminal does something, whether it's kill somebody with a firearm or kill somebody without a firearm, see, they believe that society has failed them in some way. They believe that he only did that because of systemic racism or because he had access to guns, which we should take away for his own good. They don't believe that people themselves are actually evil. What they do believe is that everything is run by the government and the only reason that we don't have a perfect society with no crime and nobody doing anything bad now is because somehow the system has failed these people. You are not an individual capable of free thought and free choices. 
Ultimately, you are merely a victim of circumstance. And that's how they see every person. But somebody that has a, you know, an absolute moral worldview that sees the world as it actually is, accepts that evil is a part of the human condition. And there are things that we can do to mitigate it. There are things that we can do to try to stop it. And I'm in favor of those things. I mean, I would not be a minister if I didn't believe that. But what I'm saying here is they believe that if they just have good enough intentions and put forth government programs and find just the right combination, that there would be no violent crime. And if those evil, dirty Republicans would just stop getting in their way of spending trillions of dollars to do it, then they would have already eliminated it. That's how they see the world. And that's the problem. A conservative or an individualist or a Christian would look at that and say, well, evil exists and we have to deal with it. That doesn't mean that the solutions are always easy or pretty, but on some level that does have to happen at some point. But here's the thing. I'm going to give AOC a little bit of credit here because I do think that I should give credit where credit is due, even when it's somebody I disagree with. Somewhere underneath the idiocy of just not building more prisons so that we won't have any more prisoners, there is actually a good point. I know it's hard for me to believe too, but there is something true underneath all of that. I actually do believe that a lot of prisons have a whole lot of people that are mentally ill and would probably be better served in some kind of mental health facility as opposed to a prison. I know that's going to shock a lot of people, but I think she's actually right on that. The question is, why is that not the case? The institutionalization. This is something that took place from about 1955 to about 1992. We saw a movement in this country. It wasn't the only political movement, but it was largely supported by the Democrats. Some Republicans jumped on board too, but there was a massive move to try to limit the amount of people in insane asylums to the point to where now there's virtually none. We have so deinstitutionalized people that now there's a whole lot of crazy people that really need to be in a mental health care facility that aren't. And that's not to say that we use those as what she described, trash bins to just throw away people we don't want to deal with. I don't think that that's right. I think we should be helping these people as much as possible. And the goal of institutionalization should be to get them out of that institution, to be able to get them to where they're well-adjusted and able to go about normal life without hurting people. I think that's actually a good thing. And I actually think that's one of the very few things that governments on the state level, not the federal level, should be doing. However, the way that she approaches that is completely backwards. Let's get rid of the prisons first, and then we'll think about adding some mental health facilities. And really, that should be... No, if we're going to do it, we need to actually do it the way that we used to. And I'm not saying there's, you know, there was some merit to the deinstitutionalization movement. I'm not saying there wasn't. There were, there were some facilities that were not doing things correctly. We don't have time to get into all of that, but that was largely a Democrat movement. 1963. JFK signed the Community Mental Health Center's Construction Act. 1965, Lyndon Baines Johnson created Medicaid spending to go to nursing homes and hospitals, but not mental hospitals. So basically his approach was we're going to starve them out by giving all of this money to nursing homes and hospitals, but give none to mental institutions so that people that are underprivileged or in poor communities that happen to have more of that that people with mental health problems, that those people get sent to those facilities as opposed to a mental health institution, which would be better equipped to serve that need. 1980, Jimmy Carter signed the Mental Health Systems Act to fund more community health centers, but 
It focused on a broad range of a community's mental health needs, and it lessened the federal government's focus on meeting the needs of those with chronic mental illness. So in other words, when Jimmy Carter signed this into law, it primarily tried to focus on clinics that don't permanently house these people, that it's just kind of come and go as you, you please, which is fine if you have, if you're just somebody that needs therapy, for example. If you're somebody that just needs to go once or twice a week to go talk out your problems with the therapist, that bill probably did a pretty good job of funding clinics that could do that. But what it didn't do is people that have schizophrenia or like severe bipolar disorder. It didn't help those people because it specifically went to smaller community clinics that were not equipped to handle the severely mentally impaired. And so there were a ton of things that led up to this movement that deinstitutionalized America. And ultimately, I think that AOC's approach is about as logical as her approach to guns. This is the reason that they don't understand why we can't just make gun-free zones and then nobody will ever get shot because you can't bring a gun into a gun-free zone. Well, the criminal doesn't care about your, your gun-free zone sign. The person that wants to commit a mass shooting, he looks at the gun-free zone sign and goes, hey, place where I don't have to worry about anybody else shooting back. That's the reason that 95% of mass shootings over the span of my lifetime have happened in gun-free zones. And this is the same kind of faulty Democrat logic that exists here. They want to be judged based on their intentions, not on their results. I believe that AOC really does want to help these people, and I think she's probably genuine in it, at least to an extent. But ultimately, the reason that she's wrong is because her approach is backwards, and she wants to do what feels good, as opposed to what actually does good and would protect people. It feels bad to imprison people. I understand it. I don't want to do it either. But I would rather somebody be imprisoned and the innocent people on the outside of the prison be protected from them than I would to feel nice about it and try to rehabilitate them outside the prison. When somebody commits a crime, especially a violent one, those people need to be behind bars, including and especially people that do so with firearms. I know that a lot of people on the left think that NRA members like myself, we just want everybody to have a firearm and every, you know, whatever. No, if you're a violent criminal, you need to be in a prison for doing something incorrect and abusing your Second Amendment rights to actually hurt another person. But ultimately, that's the problem. You cannot wish away evil with good intentions, and AOC needs to understand that. So what we're going to do now is we are going to take a quick break and we will come back with an interview with Chris Adams Walla, who is going to give us what is going to go down tonight at Riverwalk Stadium as we play the Birmingham Barons here in Montgomery. So be sure to look forward for that. We'll be back in just a second. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And thanks so much for being with us here on Tactics. Welcome back to the program. As always, we appreciate any time you're able to give us uh, here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Now, you may be noticing that all of a sudden I'm wearing a baseball cap, and that is because if you don't recognize it, this is actually the classic Montgomery Rebels hat that is sold at the Biscuit Basket with the Montgomery Biscuits, and, and this was actually a birthday present from my dad that I just got last week. So uh, thank you for that, and I'm doing that to show off the fact that we are going to be talking 
in just one moment to somebody that's been on the program several times before. It is indeed the voice of the Montgomery Biscuits. We welcome to the program once again, Chris Adams-Wall. Thanks for being on today, Chris. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah, always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And uh, I got to say, before we actually get into the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about promoting the biscuits, the retro Montgomery stuff has just been flying off the shelves there. I've noticed a lot of people walking around with the Montgomery Rebels hats like I've got on. Uh, and Gumpy has become like maybe even more popular than Monty is. And so that's been really interesting, that like retro biscuit with the, the baseball uniform on. And so uh, I think it's great to see the city supporting the team so much. Oh, no doubt. And you go inside that biscuit basket right now, you're going to see, I'm not kidding, probably 60 different kinds of biscuit hats. So if you want the retro Montgomery Rebels hat, that's there. If you want one with Gumpy on it, that's there. There was uh, an old school jersey that we wore in 2019 for the Rickwood Classic when we went up to Birmingham and played at Rickwood Field, the oldest stadium in America, mm-hmm. and that hat that we wore, I believe, is still on sale. It's a it's a navy blue and gray cap with a with a navy blue M on the front, and of course, just your traditional biscuit stuff. That's always good too. Of course, uh, and and yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking right now. I'm in the broadcast booth, and we got a lot of fans filtering in already as the biscuits trying to make it three in a row over the Barons. Yeah, really looking forward to that series. And, you know, I, I hated that I was I was trying to get y'all, uh, you or either Murph or one of the other guys on a couple weeks ago. And then I was like, well, wait a second, they're going on like a two-week road run. And so <laughs> yep. probably better to promote when you guys are actually in town. And, of course, now you are playing the Barons. Yeah, taking on Birmingham for the second time already. We went up there between May 18th and May 23rd. So we've already played at their place. We split that series. But the Biscuits have taken the first two games of this six-game homestand, which has been great. It's actually been more of a 12-game homestand because we came home after that 12-game road trip mm-hmm. and we played the Biloxi Shuckers and the Biscuits won that series 4-2. to two. It was their first series win of the year. And now they're up 2-0 on the Barons in this series. They've won six of eight now, the Biscuits have, and are only three games under 500. So they're starting to put it into gear, and they have Xavier Edwards, who is the race top prospect on this Biscuit roster. He was just activated off the injured list. He's been out with an oblique injury for the first month and a half, but he's played the last two nights, looks very good. Shane Boss had a perfect game through five innings last night, so that was really nice to see. We know these Biscuits pretty well mm-hmm. because they've been here since 04. They are notoriously slow starters, and that's the same thing that happened this year, even after the 2020 break. So once they start to click it into gear, which I think is starting to happen, they're going to take off. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what they've done. I just mentioned that we had a, a long stand away. So we were, you know, mm-hmm. visiting for, what, about two, three series, I think, we were away. Yeah, and three out of the first four series were on the road. And then, believe it or not, when this series is over against Birmingham, we're back on the road for two more weeks. Yeah, it does, it does feel like we've got rotten luck not being able to see our biscuits in Riverwalk, but I was going to say, while we were away, that's when the team started really kind of finding its sea legs and, and the bats started waking up and, and we started making some noise. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it, it's just weird, right, with the COVID protocol stuff, but, but things are starting to open up now. Uh, I think the biscuits are getting very close to reaching that 85% vaccination threshold. I know mm-hmm. some other teams in the AA South have 
So that's just going to create more, more and more of a sense of normalcy as we continue on this season. And the crowds at Riverwalk Stadium so far this year have been great. I know we're expecting another big one tonight, Friday and Saturday. Uh, we got a lot of cool giveaways. We have a T-shirt giveaway tonight. It's Sweet to Teachers Night. Uh, so this is when we're showing appreciation for all the teachers around the River region who went above and beyond uh, during the, the pandemic uh, and giving away a, a Brandon Lau Sweet and Lau or Sweet and Low, I guess it would be, T-shirt to the first 1,000 fans 15 and older. We got a reversible bucket hat giveaway presented by Gibson's Tires. Uh, tire pros tomorrow, and then we got Family Faith Night Saturday with Max Fireworks, and then a toothbrush holder giveaway presented by Dentistry for Children on Sunday. So it's it's a jam-packed weekend. So if you haven't yet been to a Biscuits game, now is a great time to go. Right, and be sure to go this weekend before they go on the road for another two weeks. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you won't see us until the end of the month otherwise. Right, why not? I mean, we're playing the interstate rivals. We're playing Birmingham. That ought to get mm-hmm. everybody out to the ballpark. Exactly. And they're a good team, Birmingham. I mean, they're they're 20-11. and 11. Uh, They're the best team record-wise in the AA South so far in 2021. But the Biscuits are 5-3 and three against them. So they've obviously proven that they can handle them. And hopefully tonight will be no different. Right, and, and Riverwalk, I think, does make a difference. Being at home and having the fans supporting you, I mean, that that does make it – that actually has an effect on uh, how the players play, in my opinion. And so yeah. um, I think that, you know, having a big crowd out there, really excited to see our guys take on the Barons, I, I think that that would help with that. So, yeah, be sure. And, um, you know, the great thing about the Biscuits is I would say even more than Major League Baseball, and I've been to a lot of Major League games, uh, they're so focused on the – I mean, of course, baseball is a primary focus, but they're so focused on fan experience at the minor league level Mm -hmm. that even if you can't really enjoy the game, even if you're, you know, the team winds up losing or you're just not a baseball fan and not into that kind of thing, you're going to have a great time with your family out at the ballpark. Uh, There's no doubt. And our GM, Mike Murphy, has done an excellent job as uh, kind of kind of our interim uh, MC on the field this season. Uh, Murph did a lot of that when he was up with Double uh, A Richmond in Virginia with the Flying Squirrels. So he's been having a lot of fun with it, and the fans are getting into it. And then on the field, just a couple nights ago, we had Garrett Whitley hit for the cycle. It's only the he's only the fourth biscuit to ever do it since uh, the the team started in Montgomery in 2004. So that was really neat to see. He homered in the first, then he doubled in the third. He tripled in the seventh and then singled into the left field corner in the eighth inning. But Gary Reedus, our first base coach, held him at first. Otherwise, it would have been a double under any other circumstances. But that's something, like Gary said, that Garrett's going to have for the rest of his life. And that was Mm -hmm. a really cool moment, just the fourth biscuit to hit for the cycle. Yeah, and that's one thing you got to love about baseball, man, the stats. You you just – baseball people are stats people. And stuff like that, knowing those bits of trivia, that's always fun. So – um, and, I, and I know that you always do the big trivia question. I think you do mm-hmm. that in the fourth inning when they're listening to the yep. podcast. That's right. Yeah, we got another one lined up for tonight. So make sure you tune in. We'll do it top of the fourth at home, bottom of the fourth when the biscuits are on the road. Because I don't want to interrupt when the biscuits <laughs> are at the plate. You know, right, I'd exactly. rather interrupt the Barons offense. Yeah. So. Right. If you miss a call there, it's no big deal. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Um, and I actually wanted to mention that, too, because uh, I don't know if I've ever even brought this up in an interview, but whenever I'm at Riverwalk, you know, I'm having a good time talking to my friends, usually talking to my dad because he's usually the one there with me. 
but I think it really enhances the experience, even if you don't listen to it all the way through, to uh, bring your phone, you know, pull up the Sports Radio 740 app or pull them up on iHeart and listen to Chris's broadcast. You learn a lot of cool things about the players. And so, yeah, I know you're at the game, but I, I really enjoy listening to your broadcast even when I'm in stadium. And so be sure to do that. I really appreciate that, Caleb. Yeah, hop on. Get, get Sports Radio 740 on your phone. You can listen on iHeartRadio app or the Sports Radio 740 app. And I think there's a way to listen on the Biscuits website as well. And if you have the MILB TV package, you can watch the Biscuits wherever you are too. So lots of options, but, uh, you know, it's best to see them in person. And of course. if you want to listen to me a little bit, like you say you do, then yeah, then, pu- then put me on. I'd, I'd I'd appreciate that. Yeah, throw in some earbuds, sit back, and uh, enjoy the game, as always. Well, <laughs> there you go. Chris, thank you so much for being with us and being generous with your time. And, uh, you know, we'll hope to see you guys after uh, we'll get to see you this weekend while you're at home. And then you go on that uh, road trip, and we'll see you when you get back. And, you know, best of luck to you. Well, thanks a lot, Caleb. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you and the rest of your listeners at Riverwalk Stadium soon. All right. As always, a pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. You have a good one, man. You too. Thanks. All right. That was Chris Adams-Wall. He is the voice of the Montgomery Biscuits. And like we said, be sure to get out to the ballpark this weekend for Family Faith Night. That's going to be on Saturday. I know that that's something that's big with my listeners, and and you're going to have a fantastic time out there with your family. As always, support our Montgomery Biscuits because, you know, We want to keep them here for as long as possible. We love them. And, hey, I mean, I'm not asking you to dig a trench here. I'm asking you to go out and have a great night with your family at the ballpark. And the food is fantastic. I forgot to mention that when I was talking to Chris. But the food is absolutely great. So be sure to do that. And we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So if you do like the program, and we hope that you do, make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or like our page on Facebook or like this video on either of those venues. However you want to show us a little love, we always appreciate it. And don't forget, now we are on a whole bunch of venues with the audio-only podcast. We're on Amazon Music, iHeart, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can find a free podcast, we're there. So be sure to listen to us on that as well, and we always appreciate you choosing to make us a part of your day. I did have one other story, and I'm sure that, especially because of my history, if you've been a fan of the show for a long time, you probably knew that this was going to be something that I I had to bring up. You may recall that back in the day, back when Chick-fil-A was very proud to stand up for traditional values and gave money to Christian charities, even though they took a lot of flack for it and a lot of heat for it, I was... I started a campaign, and I encouraged all of my listeners to do this as well, that every single time somebody on the left, whether it was a city that tried to kick them out of their airport or somebody that just wrote a nasty article about them, that I made it a point to every single time that happened, even though I'm a person that really doesn't like chicken, that I went to Chick-fil-A and purchased a meal. Sometimes I kind of cheated a little bit and went to breakfast when I'd get a sausage biscuit instead of chicken because let's be honest, their biscuits are pretty darn good. Um, But anyway, I always did this, and this was a campaign that I did, and I encourage my listeners to do the same. 
And you may recall that when they caved and bowed the knee to the Rainbow Jihad, I was very perturbed with them and actually stopped doing that. That's something that I no longer do. Well, interestingly enough, even though they did cave and capitulate and stop giving money to Christian charities that just preach basically standard run-of-the-mill Christian beliefs about homosexuality and traditional marriage, even though they did that, and even though they caved to the left, the left is still coming after them. And, and one example of this is one of the wokest corporations in America. I mean, this is the same people that gave you the rainbow burger and are constantly jeering and sneering at people and, and putting out ridiculous ads that have no basis in science whatsoever saying that, oh yeah, we sell beef, but like our beef somehow doesn't contribute to global warming the way the other beef does, which was ridiculous. And if you want to see my commentary on that, you can actually go to my uh, Burger King commentary on their ad that they put out trying to address I kid you not, cow flatulence is a part of global warming, as insane as that is. But anyway, so Burger King is is one of the woker companies in, in the country. They're right there with Starbucks and a lot of the other ones that constantly engage in this sort of thing. Well, since it's Pride Month, Burger King is unleashing a new chicken sandwich and specifically took aim at Chick-fil-A. You can actually see this tweet here where they, they kind of take a jab at Chick-fil-A. It's, it's not outright, but it's close. So they say here, during Pride Month, and in parentheses, even on Sundays, which is a, a pretty obvious jab at Chick-fil-A, which is closed on Sunday, your chicken sandwich craving can do you good. We are making a donation to Human Rights Campaign, which is a insane radical uh, gay advocacy group. I don't know what they actually go by, but they're an organization that lobbies for compelling Christians to bake cakes for people they don't want to, that kind of thing. For every chicking sold, that's their new chicken sandwich. And then they also added, with every chicking sold, Burger King will contribute 40 cents to the human rights campaign. Maximum donation is at 250000 So that's Burger King trying to virtue signal to the left how woke they are and how non-conservative they are, and to stick it in Chick-fil-A's face and saying, you can get our sandwich even on Sunday. So it's an obvious jab at them. It's not even very well thinly veiled. But here's the thing. Burger King's garbage food anyway. I'm not going to sit here and tell you to boycott Burger King because frankly, their food does that for them. I, I haven't eaten at Burger King for years, even way before they started doing all this woke mess. And the thing is, I used to actually eat at Burger King quite a bit, but the quality of their meat has dropped. Their burgers just aren't as good as they used to be. And so I gave up on Burger King a really, really long time ago, way before all this political correctness garbage started getting worked into their business model. So politics aside, I don't even really prescribe to that. But this is a perfect example. I'm not even going to talk about Burger King that much. This is a perfect example of why Chick-fil-A made a severe miscalculation in bowing the knee to wokeism. Because these people never relent. They never forgive. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much you apologize or come over to their side and tell them that they're right. They don't forgive. They don't forget. And this is a perfect example of that. Burger King, a member of the woke left, is looking at Chick-fil-A with disdain, even though they capitulated to them, and even though Chick-fil-A no longer gives money to Christian charities that teach things about traditional marriage. And even though their CEO, Dan Cathy, um, literally bowed the knee and did the whole bizarre foot-washing thing to Black Lives Matter, 
and gave credence and honor to them. Even though Chick-fil-A has completely caved to them, the woke left doesn't forgive them, and they let them know that and specifically target them. This is the way that it works. And this is why I said Chick-fil-A is insane for thinking that appeasing the gay mob is going to do them any good. Because there is no forgiveness. We have to remember that forgiveness is actually a relatively new idea in the human race. Even under Judaism, where there was some level of forgiveness written into the, the old law, even then, forgiving people and loving your enemies is not something that is super emphasized in the law of Moses. And so really that didn't come as something as seen as a universal and uh, a universal good and a virtue until later. Now, again, the old law certainly laid the groundwork for it. And that is something that is espoused as a good thing in the old law because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that law. But my point is we've only been living on this planet for about 2000 years since any group of people thought that loving your enemies and forgiving people that wrong you is actually a good thing. And so it should come as no surprise that people that are outside of that belief system, they don't really believe in forgiveness. And they don't really think loving your enemies is a thing you need to do. Ultimately, it is about dismantling and destroying anything that disagrees with your worldview, which is the way that the world was before Jesus Christ came. And so this is really not something that should come as a surprise to anybody that has studied both Christianity and history. Because this is kind of what you would expect from that. But where Chick-fil-A really screwed up is they sacrificed an army of loyal fans that loved them, that were willing to go to their restaurant, sometimes even when they didn't necessarily want the product so much as they were buying an experience, they were buying the family values, and they were willing to maybe even spend a little bit more money or go out and support the business when they really didn't have to. And we saw that with things like Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day or with people like me and my listeners who, whenever somebody attacked them, made it a point to go out there, even though I'm not a guy that likes chicken. And so they've lost that. I'm not saying they're going to go under. They're not going to like lose their business or anything. But within the span of a few years, they're just going to be another Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A will just be another Burger King. They'll just be another fast food restaurant that nobody has any like special reason to go to. They might like the food. They may still buy it. And by the way, if you're a Christian and continues to go eat at Chick-fil-A, that's fine. I don't think that's a bad thing. Just like, even though I don't really like it. I mean, I, I, I don't think that, you know, going to a organization that gives money to leftist causes is necessarily a sin or something that God's going to be upset with you about. I just think that ultimately, Chick-fil-A has lost that special ingredient, pun intended, that people were willing to support them as more than just a fast food place. Now they're just a fast food place. And because of that, I think that they have done the stupidest thing, which is trade that group of people that loved them and wanted to support them and would bend over backwards to show their support just because that's a Christian business that espouses the same values I have, that they have now become just another fast food place and they traded those people for a bunch of woke people that hate them and will never forgive them anyway. They stabbed them in the back for people that are not going to ingrate they're not going to ingratiate themselves to by doing this. They hated Chick-fil-A before and they continue to hate them now and always will.
because in the Church of Wokeism, there is no forgiveness, there is no redemption. Let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. In today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we are once again returning to, and I know it seems like I'm going after a low-hanging fruit, but look, she keeps throwing me softballs. It's not my fault. You put it in front of me, I'm going to smack it around. You, you give me a, a slow, <laughs> you give me a slider over the plate, um, right down the middle, I'm going to take a swing at it. I'm sorry, it's just my nature. AOC is back in the Daily Dose of Stupid. And this time she is, because she's always the victim, that's the thing that you can always remember about AOC is that no matter what happens, no matter what uh, circumstance surrounds her in life, no matter how wealthy she is or how many breaks that she gets or no matter how many things she gets that she did not earn or deserve, she is always the victim in every circumstance regardless of what happens to her. And this story is a perfect example of that. So to give you a little bit of background, AOC tweeted this out a few nights ago. And this is to her talking about her grandma. She says, in AOC voice, Like, just over a week ago, my abuela, that's Spanish for grandmother, for those of you that are not bilingual, my abuela fell ill. I went to Puerto Rico to see her my first time there in a year because of COVID. This is her home. Hurricane Maria relief hasn't arrived. Trump blocked relief dollar signs for PR. People are being forced to flee ancestral homes, and developers are taking them. And, of course, for those of you that are listening, I know you can't see the pictures, uh, but those of you that are audio only, it shows a picture of, like, her grandma's roof falling in and some of the repairs from Hurricane Maria, which, by the way, was, like, four years ago now. It still has some of the damage from that event, which is sad and tragic, and, and I hate that that has taken place. Now, the funny thing about that is, the equipment actually did get there. The relief actually did arrive. The problem was in distribution, which was largely not handled by the federal government, but by the local government of Puerto Rico, which is heavily Democrat. And so Trump did his part. Like the federal funds and the relief actually showed up on Puerto Rico's door. To this day, some of those things have not been dispersed to the people that they should have been because of mismanagement. The Fed can only do so much, regardless of who is president. I'd say this if, if this happened under Joe Biden. If he got the stuff to the door and got it inside the state, or in this case, the colony, then that's on the government there locally that didn't distribute it properly. You know, they, they can't go in and force it on them. It showed up at their doorstep. It's like um, getting mad at Amazon when they delivered the package on the door and being like, if again, an AOC voice, Ah, it wasn't even inside my house. Well, th that's your part right there. If you didn't bring it into your house, open up the box and use the thing that was inside, that's your fault. You can't blame Amazon for that. Trump got the stuff into the state. It's up to them to actually distribute it. And again, there are reports that to this day, there are supplies that have not gotten there. And by the way, AOC is pointing that out aptly. Here's the funny thing about that, though. AOC is not poor. She may have been at one time in her life. By the way, I don't believe that. She tried to paint herself as some like poor scrappy kid from the Bronx when we turn out she actually lived pretty much her entire childhood in a very wealthy, mostly white neighborhood outside of the Bronx. 
But anyway, AOC recently just uh, leased a Tesla, which, by the way, is about $60,000. And she also lives in a very swanky apartment and has multiple homes because, of course, she is a congressperson. So she works in New York and or sorry, she works in D.C., but lives in New York. And so she's got multiple homes. Uh, she's always wearing like super expensive clothing. Uh, this is something that we pointed out on one of her socialism thing. And she does fundraising on a fairly regular basis. You may recall that she had that ridiculous tax the rich sweatshirt that costs 60 bucks a sweatshirt. So AOC obviously has the power and influence to do fundraising measures. And she also has a good bit of money on her own. So why is it that her own grandmother can't afford to get her house fixed? Why is it that her grandmother is living in these conditions when AOC would be able to help? And this is exactly what Matt Walsh, who is a, a columnist and a blogger over at the Daily Wire, don't agree with him on everything, but he is a conservative and, and he's you know pretty good, especially at social issues when he's talking about um, some of the hypocrisy of the left. He pointed this out on Twitter and they got into a spat, went back and forth a little bit. And then Matt Walsh, so basically what any normal conservative Christian would do is fine. If the government isn't helping this person out and it seems like her family obviously isn't helping her out in the sense that AOC went over there to visit her and didn't seem to want to lift a finger to actually repair her own grandma's house. He said, fine, if, if the government won't help her and her family won't help her, I'm going to help her. And so what Matt Walsh did is he started a GoFundMe account where he raised in the span of two days, 100 thousand dollars to fix Abuela's home and they rejected it and GoFundMe actually reached out to him and I saw this in an interview he did the other day they reached out to him and said that the family of the beneficiary not the family member herself not Abuela herself but the family of the GoFundMe page said that they would reject it which I assume means either AOC or somebody you know like her mom or dad or something like that I didn't even know that the person that isn't the beneficiary could reject a GoFundMe like that. But either way, that's what GoFundMe decided to do. And this resulted in a fantastic spat between the two of them. Um, let's observe real quickly what this means, though. Because the way I see it, there are really only two possibilities here. Either Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is lying. These are old pictures and her house has long since been repaired and thus they don't need the money. And so they rejected the money on the, the basis that they don't really need it. And she's just lying about her grandma and lying about her living conditions and just using the lies of political football. Or she's, and this is worse, she's allowing her grandmother to do this despite the fact that she's living in luxury in both DC and New York, wearing designer clothes all the time, driving around a very expensive electric vehicle, eating out at fancy restaurants in D.C., which let me remind you, the D.C. area has the 10 communities, the 10 counties in America with the highest cost of living in the world. And AOC lives there for a large part of her time. And yet her grandmother living out in Puerto Rico, she can't even raise money from other people and be bothered to sell some really overpriced t-shirts to help her own grandma? One of those two things is true. Either she's just lying about it, 
or she prefers letting her grandma live that way so she can use her as a political bludgeon to bash people over the head with as her political adversaries, in this case, Donald Trump. Neither of those things is good. Neither of those options speaks very well to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And the thing is, it does show a difference in mentality here because me as a conservative and somebody that considers my first duty to my family, first and foremost, I would be ashamed to show people the living condition of a family member of mine if I had the means to help them out and didn't because I would see that. I would have thought of that before I posted it, that if nothing else, out of selfish reasons, this will make me look really bad if I'm pulling down six figures a year and my immediate, not my immediate family, but my, my nearest to kin just about it is living in squalor in Puerto Rico. Like I would have been embarrassed to even post that. But apparently AOC sees no problem with this because she sees the government as being what's responsible for taking care of her family, not her. And that is a deeper-seated problem here. But what I love about this, and, and Matt Walsh trying to help her out, is it resulted in one of the greatest headlines of all time, coming directly from The Independent. I love this, and I think that you will too. From The Independent, you can see there, right-wing blogger launches GoFundMe for AOC's Puerto Rico grandmother in latest personal attack. We've all been attacked from time to time, no matter who you, no matter who you are or where you come from. There's at least one person in your life that doesn't like you, that has attacked you or threatened you, or you know maybe even physically attacked you. I hope that hasn't happened to you. But all of us have been attacked by somebody. Someone's lashed out at us at some point. I've been attacked a lot because of my career. I don't think I've ever been attacked by somebody offering to give me $100,000. In fact, if anyone wants to attack me by presenting me with $100,000, please, by all means, do that. I'd love for you to attack me with $100,000. You can attack me with $100,000 in $1 bills if you want to. We can sit here for two hours and you just fling $1 bills at me to attack me with your money. If you want to do this, please do so. I have, you know, a gun collection to support. <laughs> oh, man. It just amazes me how the, the liberal media is so hilarious and so predictable. How somehow everything Republicans do in response to something a Democrat does is an attack or it's them pouncing or whatever. I mean, you can almost set your watch by it that that is what is going to happen. They, they cannot even fathom the idea that a Republican might actually genuinely want to help somebody. And in this case, this wasn't play money. This wasn't like a thing. He's like, I'll give you $100,000. No, he's like, he literally just offered to hand her family $100,000 and they rejected it. And somehow this is an attack? How did the how did that headline make it past the editor? But I think the the answer is obvious. They're leftist and they see this somehow as an attack by giving them a hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, by the way, Yahoo News issued this statement, which talks about AOC's reaction to this whole thing, which makes it even funnier. Let's take a look at this from Yahoo News. My abuela is doing okay. But instead of only caring for mine and letting others suffer, I'm calling attention to the systematic injustices you seem totally fine with in ha having in a U.S. colony, she continued. <laughs> Again, this is a problem with the leftist ideology as a whole. They don't see family as the first line of defense. See, to a conservative, 
it goes like this in the hierarchy of responsibilities. Your first responsibility is to your family. The second, if you go to a church, to your church, then to your community, then to your state, then to the federal government. That's how this works. But your highest priority is to yourself and your family. That's the way God organized the world and structured the world. That's supposed to be supreme. And that's the first people that you're supposed to take care of. This is reiterated over and over again in the scripture that, you know, it's kind of like your grandma used to say, you better start sweeping your own porch before you start trying to sweep somebody else's. Well, that's the same principle here. You take care of your family first, and then you worry about the government or the, you know, the systematic thing that AOC is talking about here. And I also love how she's like, um, to Matt Walsh, she's like, uh, the, the systematic oppression that apparently you're totally fine with. How is Matt Walsh fine with it? He actually did something to try to help remedy it. And AOC, she's sitting on her butt doing nothing. And Matt Walsh is actually trying to help the people there. And she's like, you seem fine with it. It's like, well, you seem fine with it. You're the one not doing anything about it. Matt Walsh is actually trying to change it. But anyway. I do think that that just illustrates this difference that when a conservative sees somebody in need, their first instinct is to try to help them themselves. When a liberal sees somebody in need, their first instinct is to try to find a very rich person to help them. And usually by means of force, not by asking them to help. And that really is the difference. The AOC thinks that this should be the government's responsibility and the government should be the one taking care of her grandma so she doesn't really have to lift a finger. And again, this is just assuming that she's telling the truth here. I don't know that she is. I mean, she lied about being in the building for the January 6th riot. She lied about a protester trying to threaten her when it turns out it was actually a police officer. I mean, the woman lies at the drop of a hat, so she very well could be lying here and her grandma's house has already been fixed. But let's just assume that she's not if she is telling the truth, then what is actually going on here is she is saying, according to her own, her own statement, and her own logic, that she's not going to worry about fixing her own grandmother's house until the system comes and does it for her. She would rather her grandmother suffer than help her out herself because she's waiting on the government to do it. That's how a Marxist thinks, that it's supposed to be done by the government. And the government is the solution to every problem. You know, even if I believed the government were flawed and even if I believed it were wrong and corrupt, that still would not absolve me of my responsibility to help out my family members when I am able. And it amazes me that AOC didn't even think that that was a possibility and it didn't even register with her that maybe I shouldn't post pictures of my grandma living in these conditions from an event that happened four years ago because it would kind of show people that I don't really care about my grandma. Like, that didn't even cross her mind. And that is what is so astounding about this. But I think what it does highlight is ultimately it shows that socialism is not about compassion. It is about political power. Because AOC doesn't even have compassion for her own grandmother when it comes to trying to help her out of this situation, ultimately, it's just a way for you to avoid responsibility. That's what all socialism is. You don't have to worry about the consequences of having a baby out of wedlock because 
the state will pay for that baby or pay for you to get an abortion if that's the case. So you don't have to worry about, you know, overeating, living a completely unhealthy lifestyle because the government is going to take care of your health care needs. You don't have to worry about being irresponsible with your money because the government is going to provide for you. You don't have to worry about being lazy and not working because the government is going to step in and help. You don't have to worry about making really bad grades and a terrible ACT score because the government is going to step in and make sure that you have a college education. Their answer to everything is the government because they themselves don't believe in personal responsibility. And this is a perfect case study in that. AOC does not see any personal responsibility on her part to take care of her own family because in her mind, that's the government's job, not mine. Socialism is not about charity and not about compassion, and it never was, and this story proves it. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. And just to, for those of you that may not have seen the last Chaplain's Report that we did on this, to give a little bit of background, David got the call from God that God commanded him while he's on the run from Saul and trying to hide out in the wilderness with a troop of men. He said, there are some Philistines attacking the city of Kilah, and I want you to go down there and liberate this city from Philistine influence. And he says, okay, are you going to make me victorious in battle? And God says, yes. Some of his men, very hesitant about this because they said, look, Kilah is kind of a trap. It's a, a double barred city. We go down there and we, even if we wind up beating the Philistines, we're going to get stuck and Saul is going to capture us and he's seeking to kill us. Which, by the way, totally legitimate fear, and we're going to see that here in the verse in just a second. But David winds up going ahead and doing it anyway because it's what God told him to do. And so that's how we arrive at this little episode and kind of Saul's reaction to these events playing out. So let's look at 1 Samuel 23, verses 10 through 14. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the citizens of Kalah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the citizens of Kilah hand me and my men over to Saul? And the Lord said, they will hand you over. And then David and his men, about 600, rose up and departed from Kilah. And they went wherever they could go. When it was reported to Saul... That David could had that David had escaped from Kalah, he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand him over to him. You know that old saying that no good deed goes unpunished. If you're David in this situation, you have got to feel like that. And he has a great deal of, of strength of character and endurance, and I think that that is shown throughout the narrative. 
of First Samuel. But dang it, if you don't feel bad for him on this stuff, this is a guy that just put himself in great personal risk, knowing that the king, the ruler with absolute power in his own country is trying to kill him. And he went out of his way to rescue people of the city from an invasion from foreign actors. And when he does that, not only is he pinned up against a wall so that his enemy can capture him, but he asked God, are the people of the city that I just saved going to turn me over? And God says, yep, so you better get out of there pretty quick. You see how easy it would be to feel defeated on that? I mean, David just went out of his way and put he and his own men's lives at risk to save these people, and they're about to turn him into his enemy. You gotta feel betrayed after something like that. And I just think that it's so relatable to see David having to deal with this because I kind of feel the same way from time to time. I really do, and I don't mean to, but I think that every person feels like this from time to time. You wonder if the things that you're doing, the good that you're trying to do, is it even working? Is it even actually making a difference? And sometimes... Even when we do good to people, we feel like our only reward for it is more grief and heartache. Sometimes people disappoint us. Often people disappoint us. Sometimes you try to lead somebody to the gospel and you get harassed at work or told that you're not allowed to do that anymore. I mean, there are times where doing what God asked, which is exactly what David did, it results in us being chastised for it. We feel like we're trying to do the right thing and then... Instead of being rewarded, the exact opposite happens. And I got to believe that that's kind of where David was when all of this happened. He's got to feel like no good deed goes unpunished, that he just did all of this for these people, and they're about to turn him over to his mortal enemy. And notice how in both of these instances, because going back to the original story that we looked at in verses 1 through 5, when David is seeking advice and guidance, his first instinct, okay, let's ask God about it. Let's see what God would want us to do, and then we'll do that. And he even got resistance from his own men and said, nope, God said to do this, we're doing this. And then when he's in trouble again, and when he thinks that Saul might come and, and you know pin him up against the wall there and have him stuck in that city to where he could capture him, what does he do then? He goes to God. And I think this is part of the reason that David is such a strong and effective leader, and something I wish our own leaders here in America and in the state of Alabama and in the city of Montgomery would emulate. And I also think, and this is very important as well, that this is the reason that God refers to him as somebody that had a heart that sought him, a man after God's own heart. I think the reason that he has that title is because for all his flaws and, and problems and, and things that we see that are not all that flattering to David, he always wanted to see what God was going to do and, and do the best thing that he could to try to serve him. And to he always sought God's favor and sought to do what God would have wanted him to do. Sometimes he failed at that, just like all of us do. But that was his first instinct, is to go to God and try to see what God thought about what he was doing before he acted. There's an awful lot of people that act and then say, sorry, God. David was proactive in this, and he actively sought out God's counsel when he was going to make decisions. But here's another thing that 
I wanted to point out about this passage as well. Was David ever really in danger? Because think about the way I just presented what we were talking about. I said that Saul has supreme and absolute power in Israel. Does he? From a human perspective, yes. Any order that Saul gave, his men were obliged to obey. And under the law of Israel, he had the right to bring forth his wrath upon anybody that he so chose. There were no limits written into the law for a king in that sense. But in the law of Moses, and when I say that, I mean by extension the law of God, we understand that the covenant with Israel is that God is the king of Israel. He is the true ruler. And the reason that David was a good king is because David recognized that. David understood that his power and influence, even though he was king, were limited and were contingent upon God. Saul did it. Saul didn't consult God. Sometimes he actively rebelled against God. And ultimately, he saw things he didn't consult with God. He just, as we talked about in the verse right there, Saul just finds out about it and he's like, okay, let's go down there. He did, did Saul ever ask what God thought about that? Did he ever ask, is me going down and capturing the city and, and taking David as prisoner and killing him, is that something God would want me to do? Thought never crossed his mind to ask about God and how he felt about it. And so it shows a very strong contrast between these two. But it also emphasizes that Saul's not really the one that's in control here. And that's the reason that David trusted him. It's the reason that David is willing to put his life in God's hands is because he understands that even though it seems from human eyes that Saul has all the power and all the influence, and even though David is smart in the sense that he understands, like he doesn't just sit around and wait for God to save him, he actually takes steps and, and does things to try to preserve his own life as well, but he consults God and involves him in that process where Saul doesn't. And that's because he understood that as long as God is on my side, it doesn't really matter whether Saul is against me or not. That's a lesson that David learned with Goliath as well. It doesn't really matter how tall Goliath is or how powerful he is or how many weapons he has or how much more experience he has than me. I've got God on my side, so I win regardless. And he understood that about Saul as well. Yes, Saul has every advantage here. Um, he has the entire country on his side. He has a much bigger military, a better equipped military. I've just got like a ragtag group of vagabonds here. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because God's on my side and I try to make sure that I am on his side. And because of that, I'm going to be the one that prevails. And so if God tells me to go do something, even if I see it as dangerous, I understand that God actually knows what's going on here and God protects him. You notice how that verse ends in verse 14. It says, and Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand him over to him. See, God's always the one in control. Saul doesn't have control. He has the illusion of control. And that's the difference here. God's the one actually orchestrating these events. God's actually the one that's protecting David and making sure that he does what he would need to do to make sure that he is safe from Saul. And I think that the lesson that we can take from that is if we are seeking to do God's will and help others like David did with the city of Kalat, even if the people didn't appreciate it, even if the people rejected him and the people were they were willing to turn David over to protect their own hide. Even when that happens to us, the cruelty and the disloyalty of human beings doesn't matter if we're on God's side because God is going to be looking out for us. God is going to be protecting us. That doesn't mean we're never going to suffer. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt when people betray us, as I'm sure it hurt David when this happened to him. 
But what it does mean is ultimately we'll be okay because God is going to be watching out for us. So what man does to us really doesn't make a big difference. And I think that's the takeaway here because humans, even ones that David protected and did things for, they weren't faithful. But God is always faithful. David knew that, he understood it, and his behavior reflected that knowledge that God was always faithful. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.